Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today, I'm joined by the political scientist Yasmin Mujanovic, author of Hunger and Fury, The Crisis of Democracy in the Balkans, and also Una Haidari, a journalist who has reported extensively from the Balkans and focuses on nationalism, identity, and post-socialism. Yasmin, Una, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yasmin, you wrote an essay for us about the Balkan roots of this right-wing conspiracy theory called The Great Replacement, mm -hmm. in which you, you trace the history of it quite intriguingly. But I want to start there. Mm -hmm. What is this Great Replacement theory of the far right? Right. So it's, uh, it's this idea, or I should say several different kind of mutations of one central idea, which is basically that um, there is a quote-unquote great replacement happening of um, what is characterized as the kind of white Christian Western civilization. I'm putting all of that in very large scare quotes um, by um, immigrants coming into uh, uh, Europe and North America, in particular from places like the North Africa and the Middle East. Um, but in places like the United States, the, the theory has also been kind of adapted to refer to um, Hispanic and Latino communities coming into the United States. So it's, it's this idea of a kind of um, basically, uh, uh, you know, other uh, oriental colored, dark scheming um, uh, immigrant population that is coming into these uh, ostensibly white majority countries and replacing them uh, through a kind of uh, a demographic warfare is what adherents of this uh, uh, theory subscribe to. So that's that's kind of the short version of what this of this idea is about. And and then of course you know folks who subscribe to it believe that obviously you need to not just um, severely clamp down on on immigration into these countries, but also that you need to do something about the populations that have already arrived, which is to say essentially expel them uh, or otherwise get rid of them to kind of, again, defend this supposed uh, a white Christian civilization. Right. And this theory is not confined to just one place. That's one of the things that makes it so intriguing. It's moved around the world. You have these alt-right terrorists who have been motivated mm -hmm. by it in places as, I mean, as far as field as the United States, where you are, mm -hmm. to Europe, the Balkans, of course, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. It's become this global phenomenon. That's right. Yeah. And, and there's a great malleability and adaptability to the theory. Uh, as I said, you know, the, the, the extremists and uh, radicals who subscribe to these ideas are always able to kind of, um, you know, adapt the theory for local circumstances. So if, you know, the primary immigrant community in the country that they're located is, uh, you know, uh, Arab or, or broadly Muslim, if it's Latino, if it's African, whatever the case may be, um, you know, the, the theory can be updated to counter or rather to respond to that perceived threat as they see it from that from that community. So there is a kind of central motif to it, which is this idea of a kind of quote unquote demographic warfare. Um, but but the targeted communities uh, can can often, um, you know, they can be kind of swapped in and out to a certain extent, although it has to be said um, in most of these narratives and in most of the versions of the Great Replacement Theory, it is specifically um, Muslim communities that, that are targeted and represented as kind of the key threat to, again, quote unquote, white Western civilization. Hmm. And we'll, we'll come to that and mm -hmm. explain some of the political context of the last two decades. But the malleability aspect, I think, is really intriguing. Because mm -hmm. like you say, there's this overarching theory that white people are being replaced. But then in different places, what happens is they sort of slot in these different groups who are doing mm -hmm. the replacing. So in the United States, um, you mentioned in your essay, I think the, the killer who committed the massacre in El Paso in Texas in 2019, right. he believed that it was Hispanics who were replacing white people. Elsewhere in the US, you see Americans holding signs saying Jews will not replace mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. In Europe, the, the, the great replacement theory, we'll come to this, but the, it was coined by a French writer, Renaud mm -hmm. Camus, and he was referring to North African Muslims um, in the Balkans, they're not concerned with Syrians or Hispanics. Mm -hmm. They're concerned about their own Muslim communities. That's right. Yeah. So there's a there's a you know indigenous Muslim threat from the perspective of uh, folks who adhere to this um, theory uh, in our region and who indeed, I mean, as I argue in the essay, that that there's a kind of um, 
uh, original version of the of the theory that essentially originates in um, Serb nationalist circles um, in the Western Balkans and in Serbia, but also throughout the region, um, that that really be begins to come to the fore um, over the course of the late 1980s and then obviously into the 1990s um, with with the onset of the Yugoslav wars and specifically the wars in Bosnia and Kosovo, um, where you know the the main demographic threat there are again these indigenous predominantly muslim populations in particular the bosnia community in um, bosnia herzegovina and then the broader ethnic albanian community in places like kosovo um, they're characterized as being this kind of um you know retrograde uh, uh, leftover people uh who singularly represent uh, uh centuries of ottoman despotism and um the idea is that the 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 kind of the final liberation of in particular the the kind of serbian national corpus cannot be achieved until it has completely and totally expelled and exterminated this kind of muslim stain on uh what are characterized as being kind of uh, you know ancestral serbian lands hmm. and the, the difficulty with this Una, i want to bring you in at this point because you've spent a lot of time in the region you've ported in a lot of balkan countries and when you are there on the ground these theories about people coming in and replacing them and as yasmin said at the very beginning the idea is to expel people who already live there when you t when it takes on the real world implications you cannot actually delineate easily communities from each other. The Balkans is not really a bunch of different nation states. People are all mixed together with ethnicities and religion and so on. Well, I think these, these um, um, approaches to dividing populations are particularly common in countries that have mixed populations. Like if um, we discussed previously uh, speaking to Faisal about how Poland is such a homogenous country that yet the the great replacement theory um, ethnically homogenous the biggest minority population is the Ukrainian population or Ukrainian um, uh, working immigrants who come into the country yet in the mm -hmm. Balkans specifically because so many pe so people so many people are so similar culturally linguistically um, Yasmin and I um, come originally come from let's say different parts of what used to be the former Yugoslavia but we share many um, we were raised and educated and taught similar things but people um in, in when the use of disintegration wars happened political leaders found it most convenient to um reinforce sort of very baseline basic differences between the different uh nations and ethnicities and um the ethnic group i mean this is was most pronounced in bosnia as yasmin said but in the case of kosovo um even though you have within, um, not that it's as pronounced as it is in Albania, but in Kosovo you have both Catholic and Muslim Albanians. Um, uh, even though you have like technically religiously different, uh, two different religions within one ethnic group, the uh, leadership in Serbia at that time um, grouped everyone um, in Kosovo um, into this like uh, presumed Muslim or Islamist threat that needs to be fought and then that any sort of political rights for uh, Kosovo Albanians would mean that Europe would allow for uh, an Islamist, radical Islamist threat to, to sort of foster um, on European soil. Hmm. But you you were talking about the 1990s and, and as you have these Yugoslav wars, as you say, there is a political aspect to it because the political leadership decides to reinforce these lines. These lines, as we, we were talking previously, Una, these lines didn't necessarily, they existed, but they were not necessarily things that most populations would have thought about. Well, I mean, Yasmin can talk about this too. I mean, Bosnia, is, I would insist, is the best example of this in the region being the most... Um, both multicultural, but also the country that had the, or a part entity within the Yugoslav Federation that had the mo the least, uh, the least definite, least clear divisions sort of mm. between uh, ethnic, ethnic and religious groups. Um, and uh, frankly, like if you would have asked any, any uh, citizen Yugoslavia in the beginning of the 80s, um, before tensions properly sort of had escalated to the point of conflict, towards the end of the 80s and, and then obviously onto the 90s, uh, Bosnia would have been the last place in Yugoslavia where you would have expected any tensions, particularly because all these different, because the country sort of um, relished its different cultural and uh, ethnic and even nominally religious uh, differences. 
Yasmin, can you come in a little bit on that? Because I want to sort of explain sure. that a little bit more for the audience. So you have a country which is so integrated among its different communities. And yet when you have the Yugoslav wars, people do find these schisms within their own communities, religion, ethnic and religious communities. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, I mean, to Una's point, you know, uh, the famous statistic that's usually given is that in Bosnia, on the eve of the war, which is to say the, the, the 1991 census, which is the last pre-war census that we have of the country, something like fully a third of all marriages in Bosnia-Herzegovina at the time were what were considered mixed marriages, which is to say, <clears throat> excuse me, which were uh, marriages between folks from different ethnic communities. So you had, you know, Serbs married to Bosniaks, Bosniaks married to Croats, Croats married to Serbs, et cetera, et cetera. So a third of all marriages in the country were were of this ethnically mixed variety, which is a very, very large number, actually. I mean, it's, it's comparable to, um, you know, what we kind of consider modern multicultural societies. Mind you, the caveat is um, <laughs> that, you know, Bosniak Serbs and Croats all speak the same language. There's no kind of visual difference between them, no racial difference between them. There are religious differences, broadly speaking, but also, um, you know, certainly in Yugoslavia prior to the war, there was a very high degree of secularism. Um, uh, so, you, you know, mixed is in in some cases a, a relative term. I mean, I remember the first time I I, I took my um, my spouse, my wife, to Bosnia, and she's she's not from the region, and I kind of used at some point this term of of mixed marriages, and she was like, "What are you talking about? You all look the same." <laughs> And right. I was like, right, yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. Um, so, but but you know, that's that's not to make light of this the, the significance of kind of sectarian um, and and ethnic identities. Obviously, you know, when we're talking about the dissolution of Yugoslavia and specifically something like the Bosnian genocide, obviously these these ethnic identities become hugely salient and hugely significant uh, as to why particular groups are targeted for extermination and expulsion and all the rest of it. Right, but this is actually why I think the example of Bosnia is so, so intriguing, because mm. when people think about mixed marriages, as you say, particularly in the Western context, and in the American context especially, they right. tend to think about ethnically mixed marriages. So they yes. mean you know, white people marrying people mm. who are who look different, brown people yeah. and some black people. Yeah. Um, but when you are talking about the Bosnian context, you are talking about people who from the outside looked exactly the same. Now, right. this after you have a war is even more shocking because yes. then it means that these invisible differences suddenly become the defining aspects of your identity. And when, uh, I, when Una and I were talking previously, I was drawing a parallel with Iraq, which went mm. through something mm. very similar after the 2003 invasion, where you had previously a lot of mixed marriages, communities right. where you had, I mean, they were um, Sunnis and Shias, two different um, sects of the same religion, but yes. nobody really thought too much about mm. it within the same family, within the same community. And then when you have this catastrophe of the war, these delineating lines suddenly take on the markers of um, of importance. And it's even more extraordinary because as in Iraq, as in Bosnia, these are invisible things. You cannot see the distinctions within them. So tell me how, when the war came, mm. now to bring Una in as well on this, how, when the war came, did people revert to these identities and why did they take on such importance suddenly? Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question. I mean, the, the I think the point that I always raise, for instance, to my students is, you know, the, the very interesting thing about, in particular, what we kind of characterize as, as sectarian tensions uh, and, and, and um, resentment like we have in Bosnia and throughout much of the region, but also places, as you said, like Iraq, um, Northern Ireland, for instance, you know, you kind of have to actually like get to know a person uh, just enough to figure out that they're part of another group and then you can hate them, right? Mm -hmm. You can't do it by just looking at them. So you have to be like, hey, buddy, how's it going? You know, what's your name? And once they tell you their name, then you can be like, ah, there you go. You, I knew it, you bastard, right? right. So th there's, there's this really perverse element to it. And then, you know, we have, you know, people, can look this footage up, you know, the footage, for instance, that we have of um, of the expulsions in places uh, like Bosnia during the war, uh, you know, you see these militias arriving into these towns and villages. And because they can't determine by looking at people what ethnic groups they're from, you know, you actually have to check their papers. And so you have to check their papers, figure out the name, and then on the basis of the name, 
you can go ahead and decide whether they're going to end up in a mass grave or not, or you know whether their uh, wives or daughters are going to be raped, or even, indeed their sons and 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 men too, right? So mm-hmm. this is this is in many ways the horror of it that there is a, there's an intimacy to the violence um, in Bosnia. Um, I would even also say in Kosovo, notwithstanding the fact that there are, um, you know, for instance, the, the Albanian language, which one can speak to much better than I can, but, you know, the Albanian and, and Serbian languages are very distinct languages. So there is more ostensibly difference, but at the same time, Albanian and, 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 and Serb communities in Kosovo had been living together for, for centuries, much as people had been living together in um, in Bosnia and throughout the region for for many centuries, so it's that it's that intimacy of that violence and 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 the horror that I think is 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 the most stark um, aspect of of the dissolution of Yugoslavia and in particular the the genocide in Bosnia. Mm. Una, has you found moving through the region that those lines have now solidified, or do you think the the end of the wars have brought about this sort of like graying of those lines where people are more willing to overlook these differences? Um, one thing I'd like to emphasize, sort of just um, um, latching on to what, what Yasmin said is, so having also had the um, uh, opportunity to report from countries, other countries in Eastern Europe, say Poland, Ukraine, um, Slovakia, and so, so forth, um, ethnicity in Central and Eastern Europe really takes on a different form than it might um, in other parts of the world. Um, most of the population in Central and Eastern and Southeastern Europe, that is the Balkans, um, are white. Um, and yet there are no other part of the world that, that I've covered. And I know that these, um, ethnic and sectarian differences exist, obviously in many different parts of the world, sadly, uh, but no other part of the part of the world that I've covered has, has, uh, these, all the, these stark divisions between, uh, different ethnic groups. And, and yet when you talk about Poland and Ukraine, people speak a different country. They belong to generally belong to, um, different religious, religious groups. Um, I think, I'm just doing this sort of emphasize emphasize for listeners um, in the Balkans, like Yasmin said, uh, except for or in, in the former Yugoslav space, people speak the all speak the same language more or less, or a mutually intelligible language, um, and uh, so the and all look the same, um, and yet there these these divisions that that uh, have that were very prominent during the war and continue to be prominent. Are ones that were um, but yes, as as to answer your question, are still prominent today. Um, it's very uh, the way in which and um, uh, both Yasmin and I and many of our friends are people who have existed and worked and and, and you know um, identified as people who are not very closely tied to any single ethnic group. Um, we either personally end up being uh, pigeonholed by others into one group versus the other. And have often been um, found in situations where, you know, uh, we, we need to react to other people we're talking to, people we're, we're interacting with in a certain way, depending on their ethnic, their, their, their supposed, presumed ethnic or religious background. Um, I think, I wish I could say that they weren't more solidified. Of course, there are pockets of progressive people all over the region. And when I say progressive, you know, open-minded, they don't have to be progressive in the classical sense of the term, but people who are much more open-minded and don't, you know, um, look into all that very, very, very intensely. But I, I think they've become more solidified, especially um, within as these, the respective nation states that have come out of the disintegration of Yugoslavia um, continue to reinforce their respective national identities. So that There's, means, that, sorry, Yasmin, just let me ask yeah, the no, question. Yeah, please. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, so that means, Una, that the, um, the the nation state lines that have been created have not actually allowed these communities the time and the space to get to know each other. They've actually created this division and then reinforced them with lines on the map. Well, I think people individually have done. Uh, I'm I continue to be impressed by individuals who um, are not limited by any kind any kind of nation state borders and so on and so forth. Be it when it comes to just like simple. You know, simply traveling to your to the neighboring country, um, the Balkans or or what used to be the former Yugoslavia have a beautiful you know coast. Uh, several countries have a wonderful coastline, and others have great sort of natural areas like you know uh, national parks that people like to travel to and all that kind of stuff. So I think individually people have overcome these differences. But I, as a journalist, someone who spends sadly spends most of her time reporting on what politicians say, I think. Um, the political leaders have uh, spent a lot of time reinforcing these differences. Mm. Yes, ma'am. 
Yeah, I think all of those points are really well taken. I was just wanting to highlight um, something that Duna had raised, which is this idea that, you know, again, as we were just discussing a moment ago, that there is no obvious, um, shall we say, physical differences between these communities in the region. Um, one of the really, again, perverse aspects of, of um, the, the, the advent, if I can say so, or the proliferation of this nationalist thinking is that um, nationalists attempt to actually invent physical or, uh, you know, uh, shall we say, cosmetic differences between these peoples after the fact, again, to kind of justify uh, these sectarian attitudes. So a couple of years ago, there was a famous um, piece of footage that leaked, or not leaked, it was it was um, published uh, by, by Radio Free Europe. Uh, they had done a documentary, and they were basically interviewing um, young people in, in Mostad, which is in the Herzegovina region of Bosnia-Herzegovina, and in an area in, uh, that's predominantly split between um, uh, ethnic Croats and ethnic Bosniaks. And this young man, this this young ethnic Croat, who was about 17 or 18, as I recall, when the program was made, was asked if he, if he had ever been to the um, other other end of town. And Mossad is not a big place. Uh, so, you know, they were basically asking him, had you gone like seven minutes down the street? And he said, no, I haven't. And they asked him, well, how come? And he said, well, you know, we, we just don't get on with those people over there. And, you know, we're just very different. And they said, well, how are you different? And he then proceeds to provide basically a kind of racialized discourse about how Bosniaks are, you know, they're of a darker hue um, and they just have darker features. And, you know, they look more basically, he's trying to say, you know, Middle Eastern or North African, which is, I mean, just absolutely patently false is when it says these are all basically, you know, white people, <laughs> whatever that term means, right? right. Um, uh, uh, so it's this, I mean, he he was literally gaslighting himself and had been gaslit by by members of his own community and very likely his own family to, to adopt this belief that there was a kind of racialized other um, in his own community, which not obviously that that would justify any kind of uh, uh, violence or sectarian attitude in and of itself. But he was he was being coached into this belief that, you know, no, 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 actually, they are very, very obviously very, very different from us. And they are part of this kind of, again, Oriental Islamic civilization. And so they look like whatever the kind of crude stereotype of what a quote unquote Muslim should look like. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's a there's a really, again, kind of perverse ideological aspect to all of this. And that brings us, I think, when we're talking about these imagined others, that brings us to this Remove Kebab song or Serbia Strong. And this is something that um, both Una and I and Yasmin and I have spoken about, but it's in your essay, Yasmin. So perhaps you can sort of explain to us a little bit about that. Just give us a sense of what that song is and then where it sits in this broader conspiracy theory about the Great Replacement. Right. So I think the the thing to emphasize right off the get-go, whenever you're having any kind of conversation about far-right extremism and uh, far-right narratives, is that you have to be cognizant of all this kind of coded language. And oftentimes, um, they're very adept use of essentially irony. Um, and that's, that's what throws people off a lot of the time. And, and it's a part of the way that these communities and the, these groups kind of protect themselves. Um, because you don't recognize oftentimes this language until you, uh, unless you're already familiar with the themes, as it were. So uh, what's known as Remove Kebab is a meme that begins to gain a lot of currency over the course of the 2010s. Um, and it comes from a Serb nationalist propaganda song um, during the Bosnian War that is written to valorize um, the wartime leader of the uh, Serb nationalist camp in Bosnia, Radovan Karadzic, who is kind of one of the primary architects of the Bosnian genocide. Uh, he's currently serving a sentence um, uh, as a result of his crimes against humanity um, in Bosnia. And it's, it's a song that was done by basically militants within his movement, uh, uh, valorizing his leadership and, and, and promoting and, and glorifying, again, these acts of uh, uh, genocide, extermination, expulsion, et cetera, et cetera. And there's this video of the song, which is, you know, very, very kind of crude VHS uh, quality that has these uh, uh, two or three uh, uh, armed and, and um, uh, men dressed in military uniforms 
uh, you know, singing this song and there's a guy with a synthesizer and an accordion and, and, and it, the whole thing looks very ridiculous. Um, but it's part of this whole genre, of these nationalist propaganda songs that were widely listened to um, in, in Bosnia and proliferated uh, throughout the region by, by some of these national leaders. Um, this, this song ends up being picked up by some of these far right elements on the internet and they figure out what it is and they start referring to it as the remove kebab song which is meant to mean um remove muslims kebab is a slur for muslims um so they're drawing on this essentially pro-genocide message of the song without specifically referencing the bosnian genocide but trying to essentially adapt it for the broader idea of anti-Muslim uh, pogroms and anti-Muslim violence. And it, it becomes hugely influential and hugely popular among the anti-Muslim far right in the West to the point um, where the uh, Christchurch terrorist in his manifesto uh, before that massacre refers to himself as a quote-unquote kebab removalist. Um, so there's there's obviously a deep-seated familiarity um, with, with the subject and, and with its origins. Well, this I want to I want to explain this for the audience because a lot of the audience will not have actually heard the song, mm -hmm. and the, the the Christchurch terrorist is a good example because he actually played that song on his live stream as he yeah. was live streaming the attack on the way to the mosque. The important aspect of the song is that it is cartoonish. Now yes. it's not for the audience who are imagining it as some sort of rousing martial song. It isn't at all. It's kind of a folk song. It's got this tinkly accordion sound mm -hmm. to it, mm -hmm. and I think. Una, I'd like to come in here. Do you think that it's because of this, it's this cartoonish element of it that it seems like a little bit of a joke, that that's the reason it gets shared so widely now? Um, I've actually researched sort of the origins of the meme or the way in which it sort of seeped into mainstream culture. And um, while it's difficult, I mean, I'm still researching it, but what it was difficult to really pinpoint the exact moment it went from being, as Yasmin said, sort of, uh, a wartime, a racist, um, uh, genocidal uh, wartime song uh, to being an internet meme that that sort of specific moment has so far eluded me so i'd be happy if any of our listeners know that and can um be, can reach out to me um but but generally uh speaking in, in the early 2000s um this is right around the gamergate um sort of uh incident in in the united states that's when uh the gaming community briefly um were riled up against sort of progressive um, gamers who wanted to include more uh, politically correct content. These were women gamers who wanted to include politically correct content online, um, including uh, games that were less violent, um, that had less sort of like sexist or heteronormative tropes of women online and stuff like that. And um, there was an entire segment, segment of this gaming community, which oftentimes also translates as like an online community. These were like people on forums and, and early forms of social media at that point, um, who uh, and this literally was happening in like 2005, you know, and they... Um, because they were sort of rebelling against what they saw as a, uh, an imposed polit politically correct narrative, um, they uh, decided to, you know, fight against it in any, in any means possible. And one of the, so, you know, if uh, until that point they had to be nice to women, they're not going to be nice to women anymore. If um, up until that point they had to be nice to Muslims, they're not going to do it anymore. And so they started, they picked up the song or a very specific moment in the song like this, this accordion um, jingle within it, um, people who are familiar with the meme will know what I'm talking about. And they pick that up and turn it into the remove uh, kebab slash Serbia strong or Serbia strong meme that has since become sort of a staple of anti-Muslim or Islamophobic um, commentary online, especially on forums like 8chan, 4chan, and God knows what else. But um, so so that that's where that all that happened. And, and um I've been shocked, seriously, to see how far this has gone. I mean, I've confronted, I've seen it in every single country in Central and Eastern Europe um, where I've reported from on the far right. And my colleagues in other countries have seen it appear um, as well. So it, it, it went from this, as Yasmin said, bizarre wartime song in Bosnia to be to probably mo the most identifiable Islamophobic meme in the world. And when you've seen it, 
being used in these countries. Give, give me a sense of what it looks like. Are people sharing it on uh, on social media? Are they showing it to each other and saying, oh, isn't this funny? In what way is it utilized? I mean, I just really don't, I'd rather not promote it. But again, one of the ways in which we can prevent it from being, uh, from people who might not know, I'm, I don't want to make excuses for anyone, but I assume there's a some, some segment of um, the internet population uh, who might not know exactly what it means, but it, it's um, either a still photograph or a GIF or, or, or short video segment of a man um, with a, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, beret or uniform that, that was used by the Bosnian Serb army in Bosnia during the war playing an accordion. Um, and it, there's even a word for the guy. Um, he's called that face man. And I'm trying to sort of use internet lingo when I'm saying this. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. is the guy who is in, in the meme and, and is, again, um, it, it's it's used, I mean, in Poland, it's used when there are discussions about um, refugees possibly being allowed into the country. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing applies to Hungary. Um, when the, as you mentioned, the Christchurch massacre happened, um, it was played at the beginning of the Facebook live stream of the massacre. Um, it, it is a very, not a very, uh, seriously, it is the, the most common meme that is used when there are discussions about Muslims in Europe or anywhere else. And when it is used, um, yes, I mean, in your experience, mm-hmm. is it being used as a joke or is it being used as a call to arms? I mean, I think it's both, right? I mean, that's, again, the, the kind of insidious aspect of it. I, I think the important thing, again, to highlight is that, as, as I think Una really laid out nicely this timeline, its origins are, you know, in this kind of bizarre internet subculture gamergate thing um, that then begins to proliferate through the internet. And, and, and I've certainly, in my personal experience, encountered a lot of people who have used the meme or, or um, made some kind of reference to it not fully understanding what it was. Um, I think there's there's a vague sense by most people who have encountered it that it is somehow, this is the thing, I've had people even claim to me that they didn't recognize that it was anti-Muslim. For instance, I've seen it encountered specifically among gamers who like to play like historical real-time strategy games. So anytime that, for instance, there's some use of the Ottoman Empire as, as an entity within a game, you know, people have used it when defeating, you know, an opponent who's maybe playing as the Ottomans or what have you. But all of this is very loosey-goosey because obviously there is a sense, you know, even if you're using it in that context, there is immediately a sense that it is somehow specifically about Muslims and and, and the Muslim community. Um, But again, there's always this kind of degree of slightly ironic detachment, although I have to say over, over the past few years, and, and I would say in particular after Christchurch, I've yet, I've since then not encountered the meme as anything other than very, very explicit and virulent um, anti-Muslim sentiment chauvinism. So at this point, it, you know, it's, it's folks who are using it, are using it knowingly, they're using it um, to promote the idea of violence against Muslims. And and they're very much, again, kind of valorizing the, the memory and the experience of the Bosnian genocide as, you know, a good thing, much much as in, for instance, certain anti-Semitic tropes have been, once again, kind of operationalized and um, uh, proliferated through, through social media, you know, by people who not only accept that the Holocaust took place, but but believe that it was in fact a good thing, right? Um, so it's 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 comparable to that kind of um, usage and that kind of sentiment. Mm-hmm. Well, now the question is, if you have these imagery and these ideas, and it moves into the far right circles of the West. Mm-hmm. There's a question to be asked about why these far-right circles in Western countries become so reliant on ideas and imagery from the Balkan Wars, the Yugoslav Mm. Wars of the 1990s. And I'm sort of intrigued by it because, you know, the the region is it's beautiful, fascinating region, but it is a a relatively small one on the Mm. edges of Europe. Mm. Why does this particular region have such a hold on the imagination of the far-right in the West? I think because what they see in the dissolution of Yugoslavia and in particular in the rise of the Serbian nationalist movement during that period is essentially a model, uh, a political and ideological model for what they would essentially like to import into their own societies. So this idea um, of a kind of 
essentially a great crusade against Muslims in particular, but again, the adaptability is there. So the, the, the sense of anyone who can be characterized as not being part of this supposedly white Christian compact, um, you know, this idea of a kind of great historical reckoning, a turn to militancy, a turn to kind of vulgar masculinity, um, and, and the idea of this kind of rejection of quote unquote modernity, um, by which they mean this kind of um, you know, quasi neo medievalist, quasi spiritualist thing that ends up characterizing um, the ascendancy of, of of Serb nationalism in, in the Balkans during this period. Um, they they like all of this. They really believe that it is a model again for for their own movements and for the kinds of societies that they want to create. And it's it's part of a broader canon of uh, kind of exemplifier regimes that is that is popular among the far right. Um, so, um, you know, when whenever there's these far right terrorist attacks or massacres, you know, you always see these um, these extremists deploying the imagery and the motifs of other regimes that they're hearkening to, whether it's, you know, the Confederacy in the American South or the Nazi regime or the apartheid regimes of Southern Africa. Um, you know, now the Bosnian genocide and the kind of broader Serb nationalist movement, its iconography, its symbolism, its discourses, that too has become part of of the kind of normative far-right framework. Um, you know, I, I, if you think back to the, the, the 2011 Norway terrorist attacks, um, you know, the, that terrorist there, he, he makes over a thousand references to the Yugoslav wars in his meandering massive manifesto. So obviously, um, you know, it's, it's really become a major feature of, of Western far-right discourses. And this, I think, Una, is, is really intriguing because you were talking about how in Eastern Europe, sometimes the communities that, that dislike each other are very difficult to tell apart, Ukrainians and um, Poles and so on. And very similarly, the the, the attack in Norway really targeted um, Norwegians who were on this uh, this uh, liberal training camp. So a lot of the uh, the, the the hatred comes from within these communities and it's directed not at outsiders but at insiders to some degree that but before i get into that i'd just like to add on to what yasmin said so um one of the main themes in when it comes to the western far right like i i've covered it myself i've colleagues who covered it even more intensely over the past couple of years um is the sense or the need in fact for sort of a, a primordial or heightened sort of narrative they can um, attach themselves to. They can, if, um, I, I'm not saying that, you know, the, uh, the, the far right only appeals to working class people or people who are um, marginalized in society in one way or another, but these are all people who are looking for a narrative that they can't find in the daily political re rhetoric within their countries. Um, and if we're talking about the Western far right, it's mainly, not mainly, but almost, almost exclusively consists of um, white men but you know caucasian uh, uh, citizens of european descent in one way or another and that's where the um crux of this lies uh, um when they feel like like let's say the far right in the united states they when they feel like they can't find satisfaction in the, their daily political rhetoric in the country um they look to like their european ancestors from like centuries ago so i've um listened to um far right activists um uh, leaders uh, of different you know, different far right movements talk about how, talk about try to get into European history from like the 19th, 18th, 17th or 16th century. Um, things that never interested people in the United States as much. It, it, so issues that Europe dealt with, wars that Europe dealt with in um, before the 20th century, before sort of the modern um, nation states were formed. And um, one of the main themes um, when it comes to sort of you know, the formation of Europe as we know it now is its struggle among other forces that um, were, or influences that were present on the continent is the fight against the Ottoman Empire or uh, the fight against Ottoman Empire, mainly through the Balkans or on the Eastern side of the flank of the continent or uh, uh, various Arab forces or Arab nations um, through the Iberian Peninsula and Sicily. And so um, these people who probably never in their lives never had to or been interested in like these obscure moments in European history are suddenly so fascinated by um, these 
so-called Muslim invaders of Europe um, to the point where they would know, you know, I remember when the Christchurch attack happened, I was in a newsroom at the time, I'm some sort of more of a roaming journalist now, but I was in a newsroom and and, uh, my editor blew up the guns for me and it was like, you know, these people go in like different names that were inscribed on the gun. He's like, try and, um, you know, define them for us so we can, you know, cover the story properly. And all of them were, um, so uh, on the Christchurch shooter's gun or two guns um, that I looked at um, were um, various Ottoman uh, leaders or no, sorry, the, the people who had fought against, apologies, people who had fought against Ottoman or Arab um, influences in, in Europe. Right. And um, so, I mean, I'm just trying to explain in the sense of like, when we're talking about like, why does this make, why does the Bosnian war mean something to people in the United States? Because they, they have, they, they picked a previous point in history where, you know, the Ottoman Empire was fighting for Vienna, like the fight for Vienna and all that kind of stuff. And then they've taken that point and, and tried to find like a more recent point in history, which for them is, I guess, if, if they buy into this far right rhetoric or this racist, um, you know, genocidal rhetoric that was actually at the, uh, at the core of the Bosnian War, they're like, oh, when was the last time anyone fought Muslims in Europe? And they're like, oh, that happened in the Bosnian War. And so they're drawing these random lines between moments in history and assuming that all of it's the same and all of it constitutes sort of the, the, the fight against, of the white Western Christian male against the sort of the, the sort of homogenized or big Muslim threat that, that could, um, you know, that, that, is, that is making the continent or, and also threatening Western white Christian civilization as such. Right. And it's this sort of clash of civilization narrative yeah. that you see. I, mean, but they see I, I personally don't like the term for many reasons, but, um, uh, but yeah, they definitely see it as a clash of civilizations. And, and because that is less of a theme, there, there weren't many, massive wars or conflict in the United conflicts in the United States between whatever generally besides well 9-11 but which wasn't a conflict as such but you know there weren't conflicts in like the ones that existed in the Balkans throughout history um, between let's see Muslim forces uh, generally nominally generally Muslim forces and and others um, they go to the Balkans are like that's my source of inspiration because that's that's when my Europe white European population fought against these 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 perceived intruders well, that's perhaps why they seek out these easily understandable conflicts from history, because if you believe that there was a clash of civilization and then you look at this horrific war on terror in the last two decades, you won't find an army of Muslims fighting an army of Christians. What you will find is a whole bunch of different people fighting and some of the people are part of these Muslim countries and some are fighting against Muslim countries and so on and so on. It is Bosnia. I mean, Bosnia, Bosnian war was, was um, especially when it comes to the Bosnian army, was not as rigidly ethnic or religious as people like to believe. Right. But I'm saying that the if you are looking at the last 20 years and you're trying to find an easily understandable narrative, yeah. the last time that you reach into history when you have one side with Muslims that have particular uniforms and look a particular way, and the other side looks particularly Christian, you will be reaching for these extraordinarily detailed historical comparisons Mm. that, frankly, most people wouldn't get. Yeah, and I mean, I think the other important part that needs to be pulled out, and I think Una has already alluded to, is, you know, specifically what the Western far right is tapping into is specifically Serbian nationalist discourses, which themselves attempted to characterize the war in Bosnia and the broader Yugoslav dissolution as a uh, essentially kind of neo-medieval struggle. I mean, they themselves are characterizing and using slurs like Turk to refer to uh, Muslims in Bosnia um, and, and even at times ethnic Albanians in, in places like Kosovo. Um, they're the ones who are marshalling this memory of, of the, you know, the, the, the Ottoman wars. They're the ones who are trying to characterize uh, Serbia as this kind of like neo-Byzantium standing on the ramparts of Christendom, defending Europe from this supposed Muslim invasion, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Western far right encounters that and says, aha, yes, this is this is what we're talking about. This is this is the thing that we're also trying to allude to and see these people not only are talking about the same thing, but they, as it were, already spilt spilt the necessary blood. So I think that's really where the kind of the point of contact occurs. Hmm. Tell me more about this self-perception of Serb nationalists, because that's very intriguing. Right. The idea of how the Serb nationalists see themselves. You use that phrase of standing, defending the ramparts of Christian Europe. Right. 
Yeah. So, so this is, this is, I mean, that's basically the, the, the kind of the narrative that you will encounter in Serb nationalist literature and, and media that, that, that pops up during this period. Um, this idea that Serbia is a kind of singular um, dam holding back these Muslim hordes um, from, from, from entering Europe proper, that they are defending um, Europe from the spread of this kind of Muslim toxin um and and obviously it's it's a very selective telling of history because um you know it, it can't account for the fact of you know what well, what happened during like the 20th century and the 19th century and and you know the, the ottoman empire has been gone for a while gentlemen um what exactly are you on about but there this is the thing um serb nationalist propaganda much like all far-right propaganda is rooted in a is fundamentally revisionist narrative of history and so the, the pitch that they were trying to make to western audiences during the 90s and that the, the one that they've tried to um, proliferate since then is this idea that you know if we're not for the violence that they conducted then this um, massive Muslim invasion would have happened, um, and so again, this is this is where you get to that point. Much as with certain, you know, far right elements vis-a-vis -vis the Holocaust, you know, it's not. There are obviously massive um, campaigns of uh, genocide denial and negationism vis-a-vis -vis the Bosnian genocide. But when you really dig into some of these Serb nationalist discourses, they don't actually deny that the Bosnian genocide took place. They celebrate it and they 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 elevate it as a model for how you know Christian Europe, quote unquote, should deal with its own Muslim communities. And do they feel that the rest of this so-called imagined Christian Europe ought to be grateful in some ways to them? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a strong sense that, you know, uh, as it's sometimes referred to, heavenly Serbia or Christian Serbia has kind of been grossly mischaracterized and misunderstood by, you know, again, the effete multi-ethnic liberal West uh, that has abandoned its own identity, its own whiteness, its own Christianity, its own traditions and its own roots. And that, in fact, it should look to Serbia and its recent history to see how one's identity can be recaptured and reclaimed. And obviously, as in all far-right discourses and, and classic fascist discourses, the reclamation of identity can only happen effectively through a kind of baptism of blood. And that's essentially, again, the role of the Bosnian genocide. It is this kind of baptism of blood uh, in which you have to confront the, 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 the kind of, you know, the, the, the enemy within your own society. And that, of course, is the Muslims. And again, in the, in the West, it is, it is Muslims also, but also Jewish people, LGBT people, et cetera, et cetera. Hence why the song was originally called Serbia Strong. That's right. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the people that they blame for this. So I had a conversation with the cognitive scientist Nafis Hamid, who uses neuroscience to investigate far-right terrorism and jihadi extremism. And we were talking about how both those groups tend to blame people around them for corrupting the community. And the reason for that, of course, is that, you know, if you're part of these far-right extremists or Islamist extremists, you have to explain why the vast majority of people don't seem to agree with you and the way that is done, and people will immediately see now the parallel between the Serb nationalists, is that the way it's done with the jihadis and the far-right is to say, look, it's the people among us who are leading us astray. So with jihadis, it's either the West or it's Arab rulers, and with the far-right, it's the liberal media, the Washington elite. And this is the same process you see with Serb nationalists, with the, the Great Replacement Theory, where there's a perception that it's the people among us who have led us astray, who are letting this happen. And so you've already alluded to this perception of the, the Europeans as, as having given up their whiteness and Christianness. But you also see it, I think, Una, you would say, with the European Union becoming this bogeyman. And maybe in the Balkans, and to some degree in the United States, they, they say it's, it's our own leaders who have done that. Have I categorized that correctly, Yasmin? Did you ask me or Yasmin? Start with you, yeah. Starting so, with Una, what? Una, why don't you tell us? Yeah, oh, okay. yeah well, um, I think uh, uh, definitely, um, again, this goes back to, or can kind of be tied into what I talked about um, when I mentioned the Gamergate community and sort of enforced or, uh, or or the political correctness that was forced on, upon a community that they felt um, wasn't genuine. It, uh, nationalist communities um, in all parts of 
especially Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, we're talking about um, it's become sort of very commonplace to talk about these populist leaders and or so-called populist leaders in Poland, um, in, in Hungary, and so on and so forth. And um, all of them feel um, as they become less tolerant, uh, more, uh, you know, chauvinist in, in the rhetoric, uh, they constantly say, well, you know, we, we this is what we actually are. Um, if we were nice and tolerant before, it was something that was forced on forced on us by the European Union or, or by the West. Um, I think uh, that, uh, again, this is a topic of conversation that we could talk about for literally hours, but um, one of the ways in which um, any kind of, when I've uh, spoken to people who propagate these theories, I'm talking about the nationalist, intolerant, be it Serbian nationalists, I mean, Yasin talked about the Serbian nationalists, it's Croatian nationalists as well, it's um, different nationalists in the region, uh, sadly, who um, have similarly intolerant beliefs towards the Bosnia community or general uh, Balkan pop- communities of uh, who are nominally Muslim, um, uh, they all uh, say, well, you know, it's not like they're not like we actually like them, but if anyone in, in the public sphere or, uh, you know, even privately is nice to them or feels they, they should be part of the community, it's something that's imposed by outsiders or, you know, mainly the West. And I think that um, generally speaking, um, this is something that, that most individually people, like I've um, covered the topic of the far right for ages and when I can, you know, I, I meet a random, I mean, this is the typical journalistic anecdote, but like I go to a small village in a small place, you know, and I talk to people like, why are you, why do you feel like your neighbors or, you know, so like you wouldn't like, you don't want to live next to the, let's say Muslim majority village. And they are like, well, you know, it's not like, you know, they're terrible, but, you know, the West makes us think that they're, that makes us forces to live together, even though we'd rather live in an ethnically homogenous or pure country. Um, and I, I continue to be, and I hope this is an answer to your question, but I can continue to be fascinated by how much this has permeated the, the, the conventional thinking of people all across uh, the region, but as well, uh, other parts of Europe as well. The fact that humans are not inherently tolerant but um or politically correct if they are tolerant or what they call politically correct it comes from it's imposed by someone on the side be it the west george soros or um any other uh person who's who's who's, you know spends his time propagating this this sort of belief system they see that it's a temporary aspect this living together it's an unnatural state that has been forced upon them I mean, I have to just, I mean, of course, um, most of this this program is focused on talking about the most extreme sides of of this um, phenomenon. There are people who do not believe this. There are many people who don't believe this. I mean, um, the Balkans, Western Balkans in particular, are a region in the world where I, you know, I've often said you can find some of the most intense bigots, but also the most kindest, welcoming, you know, generous people on the entire European continent um, so in case listeners are like, why do you paint us all with the same sort of breaststrokes? Um, not everyone is like that. But yes, uh, 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 many, many people, to go back to the bigots, uh, many people do believe that this is a, a, a temporary thing that has been imposed by someone on the outside. Mm. Yes, I mean, let me bring you in then. Mm. Um, yeah, no, go ahead. No, go on, go on. <laughs> so I think Una raises a really important point. Um, that gets lost in a lot of these discussions about, uh, you know, the Balkans and, and the Bosnian genocide and, and, and all of this, which is um, that this is a region that is inherently diverse and inherently multicultural and, and multi-religious and arguably the most diverse in Europe today. And that this um, multi-ethnicity, which I think is very unique and different from from other forms of multi-ethnicity that you encounter in um in 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 parts of the west that it's that it's indigenous that that you know multi-ethnicity is not a recent phenomenon um in the balkans mind you it's not actually a recent phenomenon in the west either this is this is one of the other myths um that that the far right propagates right that like the presence of um people of color or or muslims in 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 the west that that this is you know somehow something that started happening since like the 1990s or something, which is of course absurd. Um, But it is certainly the the case that essentially as far back as we can go in the historical record um, in in what is today the Balkans, 
it has always been a place of pluralism. So any kind of attempt to impose or to, um, you know, imagine this kind of notion of homogeneity or monoethnicity in the Balkans is rooted ultimately in fiction and in fantasy. Um, because it has never existed and it can't exist. I mean, even in Bosnia today, um, after the genocide, you you still, obviously the country is still by definition multi-ethnic because all of these con communities continue to exist, even when they are sort of internally separate from one another. But in many communities, you do still see a significant degree of, of multi-ethnic commingling, coexistence, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I think it's important that that not be lost. Violence of this sort is rooted in 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 a, in a in a kind of phantasm because what it what it imagines has never existed and it can only exist through violence you can only create homogeneity through violence and even after violence um the the kind of the region has tended to revert to form which is to say towards pluralism and coexistence so we're coming now almost to the end of the hour that we have with the two of you, but I want to just give a an idea of what this fantasy would look like if it ever came about. As you say, Yasmin, it is not really possible to create it without rivers mm. of blood, but I want to imagine what that would look like and, and sort of think about it a little bit, because one of the aspects that I think is intriguing about Serb nationalism is the way that it overlaps with more traditional masculinity. Mm. And this is something mm -hmm. where you look at the imagery you know, it's of Serb men in uniform and guns and camaraderie. And it seems like a very conservative worldview. Mm. Um, but it also, in some ways, that masculinity can be attractive to people who are perhaps on the periphery of their society. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I think um, basically the closest uh, kind of parallel that I could draw to is is you know for folks who are maybe familiar with the kind of classic manifestations of fascism and Nazism um, during the course of the 1930s and 1940s, there is always this kind of um, combination, this odd combination between um, very uh, stark representations of masculinity, um, very kind of quote unquote traditional representations of femininity, which is to say, you know, women should be in the home raising children. Um, but that's then combined with uh, this very stark modern idea of like state power and militarism and, um, you know, the idea of, of, of militancy as a kind of necessary virtue uh, in, in, a, in a world that is beset by, again, this kind of uh, um, degeneracy. Um, and so th th there's, this, there's this very, very stark vision of the future um, that, that, that folks who adhere to these theories um, subscribe to. Um, and, and again, you know, it, it's, it's, it's virtually impossible to subscribe to these ideas without subscribing to, um, again, the central motif, which is the necessity, the need, and indeed the kind of um, transformative, almost religious uh, uh, process of violence. Violence is really endemic to these theories. And it is, in fact, the, the, the kind of chief animating um, principle of them. The thing that gives these theories meaning is the kind of desire and drive towards confrontation with all of these, again, kind of alien uh, elements within your society. And that the only way that you can truly become a, a, a real, quote unquote, community that, again, espouses all of these kind of traditionalist values, these conservative values, blah, 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 um, that can only happen through the process of liberation. And the process of liberation is, is, is inherently one of violence and extermination of the other. Do you think, Yasmin, that people actually realize what it would entail? When we spoke before, you used that term uh, titillating. You said this clash right. of civilizations idea is very titillating to the far right. And I thought that that term meant that they have an interest in the war and violence without mm -hmm. fully understanding its consequences. I think it's... Um... 
I, you know, I think both are true. I think the process of radicalization, and, and as you alluded to already, uh, Islamist extremist groups in the Middle East, ISIS, et cetera, et cetera, the process of radicalization is one which, you know, begins slowly. Uh, it, 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 it's titillating initially because it's about the history and the militancy and the portrayals of masculinity, and, and, and all of it is, is, to a certain extent, aesthetic to one extent or another. But once you begin to buy into portions of that aesthetic, then the next step is to actually begin to embody and practice those ideas. And over time, you are led to the conclusion um, and the belief that the only way that these ideas can really be truly enacted and practiced is through violence. Um, so, you know, there's, there, there is always a little bit of a lag between somebody, I think, encountering these ideas, becoming enticed and titillated by them, and then acting on them, but to act on them fundamentally means to to engage in violence. Mm. Una, in your travels and reporting on the region, do you think that the people who are interested in these ideas would actually enjoy living in these societies if they ever came to fruition? I'm not sure they have a clear conception of what the societies themselves would look like, but what in to, to sort of um, uh, expand on what Yasin said, they're definitely interested in the idea of um, participating in a uh, any sort of perhaps not armed conflict, but a fight uh, of sorts um, to 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 create a, a um, to defend their right to European Christian race. Um, uh, many of these many people on the far right um, are part of MMA clubs or uh, mixed martial arts clubs. Um, they uh, in, in you know they like. Uh, sort of, uh, they share a lot of on Telegram channels or, or on far right channels online. They share a lot of imagery that relates to, you know, um, ways in which they can build their own weapons or uh, where they can procure weapons and stuff like that. Um, despite the fact that not many of them don't do it, again, uh, the aesthetic of it is, like Aspen said, is a big part of it. But they uh, definitely um, enjoy um, the idea of you know forming a collective you know a lot of this is part of of, of them forming collective identity a collective identity where they would join other white christian men and fight to fight um these muslim quote-unquote invaders or hordes or or so on and so forth um so so i'm not sure they're very these aren't sophisticated thinkers in the form in the way that they would like think about how these societies would be um, function politically or economically or anything. Uh, they're not, again, quote unquote revolutionaries in that sense, but they definitely want to engage in some sort of struggle to achieve the end goal of having living in a community or in a space that is um, in their perception, ethnically or religiously homogenous. In all of your time reporting on these um, topics, Una, and being to a lot of these countries, and it sounds like you know you're, you're also engaged in these Slack channels and WhatsApp channels and so on, you still feel a lot of optimism for the region, I think. Yeah, certainly, that's the impression I've got in our conversations together. Well, we, as all, even the journalists who cover the most uh, dire situ frontline situations for conflict situations in the world, we always hope that um, none of the, the worst predictions ever come to fruition. Um, I don't believe that, I mean, when I say I don't believe the full extent of their ideas will come to fruition, I don't absolutely don't mean to undermine the danger that they pose to society and that they have shown to um, the danger, the, the, the damaging effects that they had uh, on society. Um, I mean, anytime I have been last year, I went um, and covered the anniversary, the 25th anniversary of the Srebrenica genocide. And um, besides covering the genocide itself, it's sort of the com commemoration, sorry, um, on the 25th anniversary, I was privy to sort of counter demonstrations or counter events that sort of, you know, desecrated, you know, in a way, disrespected the fact that, you know, that, that this terrible crime had happened as part of the world. And there are so many people who believe these people who uh, organize counter events or events that uh, minimize or, or relativize what happened in Bosnia. I've covered similar, similar, similar events in the Balkans and in other parts of Europe. Um, so these, you know, it, it, we're seeing a trend 
And this isn't just the Balkans. People just happen to be, you know, the Balkan wars were, um, had sort of, I guess, the luck of being covered quite intensely. And so people know the details of everything that went on, but this is happening in other parts of Europe too. Um, we see um, in Lithuania and in Poland and in Ukraine, there are far-right activists, far-right thinkers, far-right individuals who are coming into positions of power. And these are people who see anyone who's outside the, their very narrow ethnic and religious group as being an intruder or an invader and have not had, you know, both um, the minimum they can do is attack these people online or publicly. And the maximum is actually sort of drive these communities out of their countries or, or cities. And um, so on one hand, while I hold out some hope, you know, I'm still hoping that this doesn't become sort of a big massive wave in the sense that, you know, this is, we're on the brink of, of a massive civilizational conflict. By no means should this be undermined. I mean, if nothing else, um, uh, the European continent insists and prides itself on being such a tolerant and open place for all these communities, whereas um, um, at every corner and, and in most places that I've worked and covered, um, any community that is, stands out in any shape or form, and, and especially Muslim communities, are the ones that often get targeted, um, baselessly targeted and, and, and ostracized. Mm. Yes, I mean, in the American context, mm. um, given all of what's happened now with the end mm. of the Trump administration, the temporary end, perhaps, of the Trump administration, do you feel optimistic that this, these, these conspiracy theories and these ideas of replacements have turned a corner, or do you think that we are still at the beginning of it? I don't think that we've turned the corner, unfortunately. Um, I think this is going to remain a very significant security and political threat, not just in the United States, but uh, I think across the political West. Um, we have to understand that I think we are in a period of very significant far-right activism and organizing. Um, there is no horizon that is yet evident to me in terms of that process. And so what that means is that, you know, for folks working uh, on these issues, whether they're working at it from a kind of academic or activist or indeed even from a law enforcement standpoint, uh, it's important that we have these conversations, that we educate ourselves about this very specific ideological and normative framework that these groups use so that we can better anticipate and recognize these threats and 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 help vulnerable communities protect themselves. I think, for instance, is very interesting. You know, I, I live in, in Southern California and I found out a couple of days ago from, from my wife that um, some of the local uh, uh, Latino communities um, and Hispanic communities have been working uh, and cooperating with some of the local Muslim communities in particular during the holy month of Ramadan. And so for, for the breaking of the fast, for the iftar, uh, uh, you know, some of the folks from the uh, Latino community will, will come by and who work in the restaurant industries and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll bring tacos and other kind of traditional um, uh, Latino food. And then they'll have these meetings and they'll talk about different issues facing their respective communities, um, whether it's about, you know, immigration enforcement and uh, immigration related issues or, or the spike in hate crimes, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's really wonderful. That's a really beautiful example of how, you know, two communities have been targeted by different, but in many ways similar, um, you know, reactionary uh, discourses are encountering themselves as, as allies, um, admittedly through, you know, out of necessity to a certain extent. But I think there's a there's a lot in that. And, and, and I think we have a lot of work to do on that front in Europe. I think much more can be done on that front in Europe. And not just kind of talking about multi-ethnicity and multiculturalism, but recognizing its permanence um, on the continent, uh, its vitality, and and also how it, you know, a threat to one particular community, whether it's Muslim, whether it's Jewish, Roma, whoever, um, you know, the kinds of groups that will target those uh, communities are themselves a threat to the broader liberal democratic architecture of these uh, states as a whole. That, that's, I think, a really, really important kind of final point for us to recognize that uh, while these groups may be targeting individual communities, ultimately their aims are for the society as a whole. And at that point, they will, uh, uh, you know, they become a threat to all of us. They become a threat to to the polity as a whole. Yasmin Mujanovic, Una Haidari, thank you very much. Thank you. You'll find Yasmin's essay on our website, newlinesmag.com. It's called The Balkan Roots of the Far Right's Great Replacement Theory. 
And you can continue this conversation on Twitter. You'll find us there at New Lines Mag. You'll also find Yasmin at Yasmin MUJ, me at Faisal Yafai, and Una at Una Haidari. On Una's Twitter, you'll also find a link to her latest article about the importance of using filmmaking to remind Europe of its past tragedies. In this case, she's particularly referencing the genocide in Srebrenica. It's a fascinating argument, and I hope you'll take a look. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>